I wish I could conjure up some chairs for the people who have to stand. This is about the best we're, we're going to do. This is the first of a projected series of evenings devoted to great American writers. The, the choice uh, of beginning with Henry James is an arbitrary one. The next one, I think, uh, will be Emerson, and the next one after that will be Poe. Uh, we haven't scheduled them. Uh, and we will, of course, have 20th century writers as well, but it seemed interesting to start with some earlier writers. Uh, Henry James, of course, is both a 19th and a 20th century writer, as most of you know. He had a very long career. And he uh, died in our, in our century, in 1916. The f form of the evening is that uh, the three of us, I'm Susan Sontag, to my right is Elizabeth Hardwick, to my left, William Gass. The three of us will... Uh, make a presentation, some ideas, uh, ideas in progress uh, that we have about Henry James. <coughs> uh, possibly, I know that's going to be true in my case and in the case of Elizabeth Hardwick, um, focusing on one book of, of James in particular. And then we will uh, talk among ourselves about James. Our qualifications uh, for doing this uh, is that the three of us uh, have a lifetime of, of uh, reading and caring a lot about James. Uh, James has mattered to all three of us, as, as of course he has to many other uh, writers. So there's a great deal of the, uh, the arbitrary in what we're doing tonight, but we think that that, that too is uh, appropriate to our subject. So without any further ado, uh, I, uh, uh, we, we all want to speak last, because <laughs> we don't know what the other two are saying. But uh, uh, William Gass has been chivalrous enough to precede us <laughs> and to go first. Thank you very much. I hope you can hear me all right. Uh, I want to begin. Um, because I'm going to focus not even on a book, but on, not even on a page, but a piece of a page. That's about as far as I can see. Uh, and I thought it would be ni nice to start with uh, hearing the, her, the master's voice. Um, and this is my little text from uh, perhaps my favorite James, The Golden Bowl. Every evening after dinner, Charlotte Stant played to him. Seated at the piano and requiring no music, she went through his favorite things. And he had many favorites, with a facility that never failed, or that failed but just enough to pick itself up at a touch from his fitful voice. She could play anything. 
she could play everything. Always shockingly, she of course insisted, but always by his own vague measure, very much as if she might, slim, sinuous, and strong, and with practiced passion, have been playing lawn tennis or endlessly and rhythmically waltzing. His love of music, unlike his other loves, owned to vagueness, but while on his comparatively shaded sofa and smoking, 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 always smoking in the great fawn's drawing room as everywhere, the cigars of his youth rank with associations. While I say he so listened to Charlotte's piano, where the score was never absent, but between the lighted candles, the picture distinct, the vagueness spread itself about him like some boundless carpet, a surface delightfully soft to the pressure of his interest. It was a manner of passing the time that rather replaced conversation. But the air at the end, nonetheless, before they separated, had a way of seeming full of the echoes of talk. They separated in that hushed house, not quite easily, yet not quite awkwardly either, with tapers that twinkled in the large dark spaces. And for the most part, so late that the last solemn servant had been dismissed for the night. Now this is a, a scene in the rented mansion of uh, a rich American um, whose daughter will eventually, of course, marry the prince, um, the European prince with nevertheless the strange American sounding name, uh, Amerigo. So uh, Charlotte Stant is a former lover of the prince and uh, she is here entertaining Adam Verver and in a sense uh, entertaining him with the possibility of becoming Adam's wife herself. Now I want to uh, talk a, a few minutes about some of the characteristics of this passage and then about what it seems to me is central to James's approach to things. That is, there is an overriding and fundamental idea in this passage, very complex, um, which is not only an idea that is central to the paragraph, but is indeed uh, fundamental to James's whole technique. First of all, we notice, of course, a number of things about this passage, which everyone is familiar with knowing the late style. First of all, the mincing phrasing. One has the image, indeed, of some sort of squirrel or rabbit going in fright across the lawn. A few hops, a stop, a, a look around like this, another phrase, well, but maybe three, four words, and a stop, another look around, checking out everything, observing everything, um, before you finally, of course, get to the end. And then, just about the time you've crossed the yard, you get frightened and run halfway back. Uh, so there's never more than half a dozen words before a pause. And the pauses are always designed to make us wonder where we're at. 
So we have another thing, then, the recursive style. Uh, James is always looping. Now, of course, language loops all the time. Reading is basically recursive. We go out a little way. We find the bloody predicate. We wonder where the subject was. We come back. <laughs> then there are a few things tacked on past that predicate. So once we've got back to the subject, we race through the predicate again to find something, in James's case, which changes the meaning of the predicate. And therefore, we have to go back to the subject, and so it goes. A kind of vibrating technique, constantly oscillating, going out toward an edge of an idea, then coming back to modify the subject again, then going out with a new modified subject, only to have that modified, and so on. The language here in this passage is relatively simple, not always for James is as simple, but it's highly Latinate. Uh, it's in the middle distance between the most concrete and the most abstract. He says, for instance, that she plays not with ease. Uh, he wouldn't say something like easy, so that, that just sinks a little, uh, with facility. Um, he could be higher toned and sometimes is. But this passage is in a middle range of, of diction. That middle range of diction has a certain um, lack of commitment. Um, what it does is steer a course of politeness between the really hard edge down in the gutter stuff uh, and sort of really highfalutin. Now, he can be high flute. He's almost never in the gutter. But, but uh, here's a passage which is keeping very discreet and very de uh, great decorum, and for good reasons. It is full, of course, of certain verbal tics of the upper classes. This is not only appropriate, of course, to the kinds of people he's talking about and rendering, but it's uh, characteristic of his own attitudes. Um, for example, his love of music owned to vagueness, that certainly, um, to the pressure of his interest. Uh, there's a great deal of, of, in James's language throughout his work, which is very much this kind of non-pushy upper class, so, so where you never say, you never make an assertion that might cause social trouble. Um, what you do is say, rather, perhaps, nonetheless, uh, so to say. Uh, he was, so to say, a snake in the grass. Um, that sort of thing. Where, where the so to say sort of makes it a verbal thing, and, and you can proceed. Nevertheless, this permits, as we're all aware, having read some of the great satiric novels of the English uh, social system anyhow, that that enables you to say the most vicious and cutting things and still keep the social system going. And this, we have here, in this situation, um, as so much of James, an extremely, basically vulgar situation, um, which is being dealt with in such a way as to, first of all, transform its vulgarity into something else, but also hide that vulgarity. Now, this is a red-hot book like most of James's 
books are if you get past it's about you know so to say incest and <laughs> so on and so forth. <laughs> um, there are a, a, not only with the recursiveness and the mincing and stopping and so on there are repetition of sentence patterns of ideas of terms and in particular words like every always and so on what we have and vague the word vague of course is a dominant word um, what we have here is a passage which describes not one evening but every evening, obviously of a stay, but every evening after dinner, routine, a certain performance takes place. And uh, she plays not most of his favorites, but all of them. And she plays them always in this way, not sometime, and so on. Um, uh, so what we're having here is a description of a recurrent or habitual pattern of behavior at least over, let's say, the, the, the week of, of, of staying there. We have tremendous amount of alliteration in other music, which I want to get uh, uh, mentioned just simply in past. Partly, the devices of James's style are designed to force us to read aloud, or read for our inner ear, if you like, because, in, first of all, uh, you can't make sense out of the thing if you don't mince. You have to stop and look around. Otherwise, if you start sailing through, as, it, you know, uh, as my pet hate, the speed reader does, uh, then you will simply find this all verbiage and so forth and so on. You have to take note. You have to say, but nonetheless, really, you know, that otherwise. But also the meter, the phrasing, the, the great movement, and in particular, of course, the sound patterns. James is an, uh, a, a master of, of an ancient art, alliterative verse, uh, <coughs> alliterative blank verse almost. And uh, let just, uh, at late at night, at we end this passage, the, the S's begin to dominate, um, the hissing, um, and the, the culminating word uh, uh, a phrase here, I think, as the, as the passage begins its close, is this wonderful phrase, hushed house. You don't even get a out of it. It's a wonderful word. And then, shh. So you start with, and then, shh. So that, and hushed house comes out. Well, it's full of that pushing sound. And, and listen, you know, to, it was a manner of passing the time that rather replaced we have two S's in replace, and so on. Um, uh, it goes on in uh, one, one S after another, including nonetheless uh, separated and so forth and so on. I won't repeat uh, these things. Uh, so we have a, a hushed, uh, sort of slowing down, a quieting of the passage as, as the servants, solemn servants, have all been dismissed and so forth. Then the thing is full of puns and turns on puns. That is, you can't get the meaning of the whole passage if we don't understand the little changes that James makes. <clears throat> of course, one of the reasons I like James so much is that he never does anything by accident. <laughs> um, and uh, 
if he says every evening after dinner Charlotte Stant played to him rather than for him. Now to play to somebody is quite different than playing for them. And she really is playing to it. Um, she played to him and, and seated at the piano and requiring no music, she went through his favorite quotes around it, favorite things. What are you doing in my room? Going through your things. You mean my favorite things? You bet. <laughs> so in a sense, in a sense we get here, um, going through it, you know, again, it's that word things, not playing his favorite tunes. No, his favorite things. In, in, a, in a sense, what Charlotte Stant is here doing is saying what life will be like under her administration. <laughs> she could play anything. She could play everything. Always shockingly. Now, as soon as we twist it, you see, and put the wrong, or not the wrong eye, but another eye that goes beneath the surface to follow the punning, um, then, uh, of course, um, uh, uh, and, and some of it um, is, is, of course, what we call serious puns, meaning no one laughs. But as everywhere, he's smoking, 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 as everywhere, the cigars of his youth rank with associations. So we get another pun. There's a passage I'm not going to go through out of time. Uh, all the puns, but it is, in a sense, um, concludes with the, uh, the last one uh, that's so fundamental. She's talk he's talked about the score, um, the music, and so on, and then he's smoking. But the air at the end, nonetheless, before they separated, had a way of seeming full of the echoes of talk. Now, of course, the pun on air here, both in terms of the music and the well, his, one of his favorite words, circumambient um, uh, element, is, is, is important. Um, so we have all of those things, the puns, then the, the, the parallel all the way through between the score or the lighted moment between the two tapers. Here's the figure. Um, he's in the half-shaded room, so on. Uh, the, and then there's darkness around. And there's increasing as the, the playing comes to an end, and it's piano anyway. Um, it, as the piece comes to an end, it's a silent house, and everything is hushed after the, the, the playing. Um, in the large, dark spaces, everybody now absent. A situation, indeed, ripe with erotic possibilities. Uh, so we have the score, sharp, distinct. Um, I have a, a sense that she plays like an athlete. Uh, that's the sense you get. Slim, sinuous, strong, bang, you know. Uh, she plays vigorously uh, or whatever uh, honky-tonk tune he likes. This style, in other words, is one of exemplification. It's characteristic of James that his style uh, in, uh, in the logician's term, rather strict term, exemplifies the condition uh, which it's talking about. Um, what has happened here, and it's a crucial moment, when 
James remarks about um, the the listen li listener Adam. Um, his love of music. So this passage is it's going to wreck the marriage that's going to come out. His love of music, unlike his other loves, owned to vagueness. That is, when he is listening to music, his tendency is to follow out and go on and the whole reverberation and so forth. That's un-American, really, you see. Um, certainly un-American money. It's not, it's not like American money at all. Um, but he isn't, that isn't his other loves. His other loves are meat and potatoes. Right? His other loves are much different and, uh, and, and so on. But here, it, it, music alone of the things he loves, and presumably, eventually, he will love Charlotte Stant, um, but perhaps not, well, as the, the pun is, on the instant. Um, that is not mine. <laughs> Now, I, I don't want to go on any further except to, now to, to, to focus on the central issue that is happening here. Uh, both, I think, in James himself, but we cannot ascribe everything, of course, James ascribes to his characters, to him. That's, that's really vulgar and crude. Um, but we see him doing it so often, uh, so many places, that I think we can. Um, that uh, what... James is saying, in effect, is the meaning of an event is not nearly so important in its initial plot. Let's take, for example, dropping a, a, a pebble into a pond. But let's, let's do it in, let's say, the Tuileries Gardens or someplace. And it, then there, there, you know, the waves are going out the round pond. And then some distance away, maybe even 50 feet, a little sailboat will bob up and down. That will be, and then another one way over here, and another one way over here. They will bob up and down as the meaning reverberates. Now we have the cause, the plop, and then the effects. And James always says the cause is not nearly as interesting. The being of an event is in its reverberations, its causes, and, and it spreads out like a carpet on which his interest lightly can walk. And this, I think, is the situation in the very style itself. Now that whole uh, imagery is spread out over a situation which in the novel as a whole, we, we clearly see. Um, why is Charlotte Stant coming and not talking, but playing? but as if talking over and over. She's giving an audition. She's auditioning as the next wife. And, and this is the scene, see, an immensely vulgar situation. She is being, a, it's a tryout. Now, it's not a vulgar tryout, you know, the casting couch type of thing. It's, it's play the piano, play all my favorite tunes, and so on. Um, not tunes, I'm sorry, uh, my favorite things. Uh, so, um, what James has done here, I think, is, is, is an incredible number of things at once. Um, it is extremely difficult, both for um, 
well, almost every reader, in a sense to get through the golden bowl, because who wants to? <laughs> I mean, here it is, you see. I mean, you have to go very slowly because you're not going anywhere. I mean, the thing is moving in the direction of depth, of resonance, of reverberation. You have to wait for your little boat to bob. <laughs> and eventually, though it might be a small bob, <laughs> it will. Thank you. Um, well, is this working? All right. Uh, well, for my part in our Sunday evening musicale. <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel as if I had chosen to do a little piece of, uh, for an amateur musician about Al, by Alban Berg by choosing The Awkward Age, a strange and difficult novel, and I don't know quite, uh, I just finished rereading it this afternoon, but I've been thinking about it for a while, and I still don't know what is to be said about it. One thing that interests me and led me to this is the peculiarity throughout James of his dialogue. I cannot imagine any writer in any language, I cannot think of any, who approach dialogue in this way. I cannot imagine Turgenev or Tolstoy or George Eliot or Flaubert writing these odd, opaque, very simple sentences, not sentences often, of these particular nuances. Now, the, his dialogue, it, it does fascinate me. Sometimes I think, why would a grown man want to do that? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then it's particularly odd in The Awkward Age, which is actually a book about conversation, among other things. And this dialogue it has a particular sort of fascination and mysteriousness. Uh, it's a very dense, crowded book. I don't imagine most of you have it at your fingertips. And I don't really either, but uh, I do, I suppose. I don't have ideas about it, but I have the book, as I said, just having finished <laughs> reading it. And I have Even it. better. <laughs> uh, this is a London novel. There are no Americans in it and no Americans even thought about in it, except the author, who is, I think, very much in it in a very touching way. It's about a lot of very smart people, I mean, in sense in smart society, and many of them are also smart in the other sense. Not all of them are, of course. But, uh, and it's very crowded with little scenes one after another about uh, the affairs of all the people. All the people are having an affairs. They are a very racy group of people expressing what's going on uh, almost completely by dialogue. 
And it's true that this book was written after Henry James's uh, disgrace as a playwright, and I think it's it's something of of a, a heroic act for him to uh, go on with this experiment in a sense. Uh, and it is, of course, it's a wonderful book. I don't want to. I don't really know how to say that, but what interests me is this dialogue, as I read it, is most unsuited to the stage, and no doubt the dialogue of Guy Dombey was unsuited to the stage, because it doesn't give the kind of information that these naked people, the actresses, standing up there in front of the audience must give, and that it doesn't at all. It, it does not much would come over and a direct form of identification uh, over the footlight, so to speak. And here the people are very naked, as I said, with no prose exposition or interpretation around them. Of course, the awkward age has some exposition and some interpretation, but not much. This dialogue that is so bewildering in a way and so mysterious is also of the most utmost simplicity. There's hardly a four-syllable word in the dialogue. Uh, it's made up of very simple words, of which a large number of these very small little words are italicized <laughs> or put into quotation. Uh, now, to put things as James does a lot, and all of us who write do perhaps a good deal more than we should into quotations or italics, seems to me to represent a fear. It's a fear uh, that the reader will not quite get what you're saying, or that some stress will be misapplied or some stress will be lacking and therefore ruin the delicate shape of this exchange. But the words that, uh, going throughout the awkward age, that are italicized are so often pronouns, just the ones you wouldn't need italicized on the stage, since they're all standing there. And uh, they are, they tend to be uh, like this. Well, it's so hard for me to find things in here. Uh, ask him, italicized. Now, there's no question at all as to which him is referred to here. There are only two people here. <laughs> Yet he seemed to have but little to say. Try him, and so on. The, uh, then, Here's the kind of thing he italicizes. Somehow they're speaking. This, this is the very opening of the book. What did Fernando say? Mr. Longdon stared. Did you italicize call her Fernanda? I don't quite understand, you know, exactly uh, what that means. I think you can go carefully over the text and figure out. But he does this all the time, and it means, I think, that he himself is vocalizing. You vocalize and, uh, as you write, and so somehow the italics and the quotations are meant to somehow bring your voice 
And this book is, I suppose, all voice, and they're not more italics than the others, or at least I don't think so, but they're a lot. Uh, this is a book, as I said, about conversation, and it's about other things too, but it really is about that. And what I think is, um, in this clever London set, quite different, from others used by James. There's been some, he, I have the feeling, I mean, just if you imagine the writer, that he has himself met with this group, uh, not the group in the book. There are no people like this book. They're so complex and brilliant and special. But he has seen a group of people who are say in their 40s, he was in his 50s when he wrote this, they're in their 40s, they have children who are 18 or 14, and these couples of uh, some are sort of upper bourgeois, I guess, there are always a few lords and dukes hanging around here. One little line I like about that, I rather resent all the boring lords and dukes in Edith Wharton and somewhat in James of a certain kind. There's one thing that's said in this book, it says uh, about Lord, whatever his name is. Someone says, he's not himself vulgar, but he brings out vulgarity in others. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the nobility tends to do <laughs> when you put them on the page. Well, when I said this book is about conversation, uh, there is, first of all, the central plot in it is uh, uh, the young girl, the daughter of Mrs. Brooke, Mrs. Brookenham, who's called Ms. Mrs. Brooke. Her daughter, Nanda, has been, as I guess it was usage at that time in England, instead of coming out, that is, you can now go into society, she comes down from upstairs and she's now, what, I don't know what, she's now 18, 17 or 18, and she can now come downstairs and hear all of this conversation, which I think has truly disturbed Henry James, having, you imagine he must have seen this and heard this. Now this young woman, and there's another young woman, can come into the room and hear the conversation. The conversation is all about love affairs, usually about what Mr. Um, what's his name? Uh, well, somebody's wife is doing, and it's very openly talked about. And if you can call this conversation open, but it's quite clear, it's an effort to find out secrets, and also to reveal secrets that have been told to you. Uh, and, and you said you couldn't <laughs> reveal them. Uh, in this book, the, an older man who represents James, I guess, if anybody ever does, has wanted to take this young girl away from this, the corruption of this brilliant conversation. And uh, anyway, he tells one of the main characters, a Mr. Vanderbank, that he will uh, set her up with quite a bit of money if you know he thinks she should marry and get away. 
but he says, don't tell. And of course, Mr. Vanderbank immediately goes home and tells Mrs. Brooke and Mitchie, another person. And then they begin a quite a long part of the novel is how much will he settle on her? And they're not sure. Well, anyway, uh, it's a very, very strange book. But the, the point I think James is making is truly a heartfelt one. I don't know any book in reading this over I feel it has a sort of tear on the page, a flow of tears dropping down. And there's a gap in the generations. There would be, there's the generation of Mr. Long and Mr. James, and then there are these people, say, in their middle 30s or 40s, who have come from a totally different world. And it's a world he doesn't understand, but I think he cares terribly about it. And it's interesting that he should, that he's so heartbreakingly serious about the way the society goes on. They really are very, very charming, of course. They're not killers, I don't mean that. It's just the, there's something, the corruption and so on, and his, this generational displacement. I can't help but feel, seeing the really a sort of intensity of his feeling about this not very important situation, if you wanted to call it that, comes from some uh, something that was very real to him. Uh, for instance, uh, so all, but this dialogue is all nuance, emphasis, calculation for effects, and at the same time, it, it's incredibly simple. As I said, it performs sort of tricks to make people say what you want or to find out things or to reveal things while seeming not to reveal them and so forth. The book was not successful. <laughs> it was hated. And, Jane, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a hard book to read. You have to read every single you go to very, very carefully in this dialogue to understand what's coming. Finally, it does mount up to the most enormous, really emotional experience as much as any book of his. James wrote in his preface that he had a certain London group in mind after saying that he was sorry that it was not successful and really hurt and had the proper feeling of regret that it was so hated. He said he had a special London group in mind, and he thought that clever people would know who and what he meant. But then it, he says, it appears that there are very few clever people. <laughs> uh, that's enough of this for the moment. <laughs> to start with the uh, observation that a, a poet's wisdom is necessarily succinct, and uh, the wisdom of a 
prose writer is, I think, necessarily garrulous. <laughs> uh, but of course, as as uh, Elizabeth and and Bill and I have they have already remarked, and I will reaffirm in another way: no prose writer is more garrulous <laughs> than Henry James. As Bill said, he is the, he is one writer you can't speed read. <laughs> it makes no sense to go fast uh, because you aren't you aren't going anywhere except down, and. Uh, I, I, I want, would like in, in my way to uh, return to this question of the, the oddity, uh, the abstractness, uh, and the garrulousness, because I don't, as I, I think, of course, it's a fault. Uh, it's not a fault, although, uh, to be sure, that James was uh, reproached in his own lifetime as a prolific writer for this garrulousness. I don't believe that it is a fault. I think it's essential to what James wants to do as a writer, essential uh, to the substantiation of his metaphors, because I think the novelist's art, no less than the poet's, reaches its culmination in the creation of metaphors. And it's essential, of course, <coughs> to his understanding of consciousness. The main character in, in James's late novels, one could say it's been true from the beginning, but it becomes clearest in the late work. The main character in, in James's late novels is the novelist's consciousness itself, that, that voice, <coughs> that pattern of insisting, that lexical register, that tessitura. Uh, his brother, his very eminent and brilliant and wonderful brother, William James, said of uh, Henry James's writing in a, in a letter which wounded James a great deal, um, he said I thought, I, he thought that the style ran a bit more to curliness <laughs> than suited the average mind. Uh, uh, of course, it was uh, perhaps uh, uh, um, William James was a professor, and um, Henry James was not. Therefore, William James did have to worry about the average mind, since he was a Harvard professor. Uh, and Henry James clearly was not writing for the average mind. Uh, it, in, in his uh, famous condolence letter to Grace Norton, he says, uh, uttered a, a, a wonderful phrase about consciousness, that consciousness is an illimitable power. What is central for James is the choreography or dramaturgy of consciousness. That's what creates interest, interest being one of the key words in his poetics. A typical piece of Henry James' prose would be characterized by hesitations, qualifications, moral and linguistic fine-tuning. Because, first of all, because of, I think, a very simple proposition, which I happen to believe is true, he is convinced that everything is tremendously complicated. It's not just that consciousness is complicated. I think there is um, a sense in which James is a philosophical realist. He thinks that things out there are enormously complicated. If out there consists in no more than the interplay of other consciousnesses, it is not simply the complexity of his own consciousness, which is illimitable. It is uh, human situations as such. The most passionate yearning in James's characters, I think, is the yearning to understand something, to see to see, a verb on which James placed a great deal of stress. The point is to see, really to see. And his view of art 
is very much connected with this, this, uh, this idea of coming to know or to see. Uh, it is also highly erotic. Uh, the, uh, William Gass talked about the, the puns. I think there is the, the knowing and the seeing always have uh, uh, an erotic level. There's a, a, a letter, of, in, in one of the letters to Morton Fullerton in which James um, um, describes the life of art, the life of the, of the novelist, if you will. He advises Fullerton to, quote, throw yourself on the blessed alternative life, which is what I mean by the life of art, and which religiously invoked <coughs> and handsomely understood never fails the sincere invoker, sees him through everything, on the contrary, and reveals to him the secrets of and for her doing so. She has seen me through everything, and that was a large order, too. I, I know this she, in some sense, is traditional, the muse, and yet the prose seems to me um, unduly hectic or erotic. Um, the, the, the writer, he, is uh, throwing himself on the blessed alternative life, that is she, uh, and the interplay between he and she uh, I think is is clearly a, a passionate one, and there is also a, a characteristic uh, uh, not of metaphor, of meta metaphor, one could almost say, in this passage, in which the world, a reality, is identified with space, but life uh, uh, with time. Another letter. Uh, that I want to refer to. That, uh, this, uh, of course, is, the, is again the Grace Norton letter. Uh, James is offering a stoic recipe for consolation. This close friend of his, James, uh, Grace Norton, had uh, lost someone close to her. Uh, but James's account of the therapy of awareness, which he recommends to his grieving friend, I think can also be taken as an admonition to the writer. James speaks of the illimitable power of consciousness, but he adds, don't generalize too much. Be as solid, as dense, and specific as you can. And here I think James is acknowledging the power and the pull of generalizing, as one might expect from the brother of William James. Uh, and his own late work, which fascinates me so much, is uh, full of extraordinary uh, generalizations, extraordinary generalizing uh, statements. The late novels have this tissue of summative, abstracting propositions, which have the result, I think, not as one might suspect from the description of diluting emotion, but of intensifying it. It's hard to imagine a book burdened with more abstractions than The Golden Bowl, which I also, I think, like, like Bill Gass, I think is James's greatest book, and sometimes I think it's the greatest novel ever written. Uh, it's hard to imagine a book burdened with more abstractions than The Golden Bowl, and yet I know of no book that has more emotional salience, that's more uh, shattering, uh, wounding even, as a reading experience. There is the, the terribleness of the story, the edu which I, I think could be summed up as the education that is, the corruption of Maggie. Uh, 
there are four main characters, Maggie, Charlotte, Maggie's father, and Maggie's husband, the prince, who is the former lover of her best friend, Charlotte. We have the corruption of Maggie and the destruction of Charlotte. The two men are passive, are used ultimately in the story, and Charlotte is destroyed. This truly terrible story, I think, is made more terrifying um, and, and more upsetting as a reading experience by the relentless and relentlessly abstract telling. It doesn't seem to me also that there could be any way it could be uh, sh shorter. Uh, it is a measure of the torment of the situation that James must go on as he did. And consciousness is not simply liberating, obviously, it is ultimately a prison. It's kind of a damnation. I just want to say a few words about, about the golden bowl as an illustration of some of these ideas. James is making a, a, a couple of assumptions in the golden bowl as elsewhere. Uh, he's assuming a highly rule-bound society, a society with a lot of rules that people who are playing the game of society have to obey. He's also assuming a culture uh, in, which is one in which a great deal cannot be said, uh, or to put it a little differently, in which very little can be said, said explicitly. There is a remark made by the uh, principal observer figure in the novel, Fanny Assingham, who was speaking of Charlotte, the Charlotte who was auditioning for her <laughs> role as Adam Verver's second wife in, in, in the passage that, that Bill Gass focused on. Um, the following observation is made about, about, about by Fanny Assingham. As with Charlotte just before, she was embarrassed by the difference between what she took in and what she could say, what she felt, and what she could show. So there's that gap which is presupposed in that society. I mean, these, these are not novels, I think, that could have been written by somebody coming from a Mediterranean culture or a Slavic culture, for instance. Uh, so one, the rule-bound uh, nature of the society. Two, the extraordinary restrictions on what people can actually make explicit verbally. Three, the presence of, of characters of uh, exquisite self-awareness. And four, uh, that the situation is something truly terrible. Uh, the, the narrative result is a lot of abstractions uh, or circumlocutions, if you will. Voca uh, James does use a vocabulary of amazing abstractness. I started to make a list this afternoon and I found that so, a lot of the abstractions could be um, grouped into two kinds. One that referred gr quite openly to epistemological questions, uh, a theory about knowing. Uh, words like, and these were just a few that I jotted down as being used repeatedly uh, in the Golden Bowl. They are a lot of them, as Bill Gass mentioned, uh, Latinate words. Attitude, illusion, truth, selection, value, distinctness, situation, intention, knowledge, necessity, obligation, intimation, condition, thing, consciousness, impression, perception, measure, behavior, recognition, precaution, policy, decision, the real, intensity. Uh, another group of, 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 of nouns that occur again and again which have to do with a overriding theatrical or, or a pictorial uh, construction of reality. Words like view, place, effect, image, perspective, immensity, treatment, 
more, I think, uh, pictorial than theatrical. Uh, and adjectives of a surprising abstractness. These are some of the recurrent adjectives. Immense, little, fine, great, handsome, solid, general, high or highest, strange, particular, splendid, grand, rare, beautiful, wonderful, representative, blessed, vast. But this is not what um, writing classes tell you your adjective should be. It's not, and it's not what the person who is um, thought to have founded the art novel, uh, namely Flaubert, thought adjectives should be. Um, James, I suppose, uh, could be described as the first writer in English to think of himself as writing uh, art novels. And uh, adjectives like positively, quickly, slightly, remarkably, pressingly, plausibly, adjectives which, again, have uh, a lot to do with uh, notions about knowledge or about perception are surprisingly unconcrete. And I want to give you some uh, examples of metaphors. Uh, a, a lot of them I notice in the, in the Golden Bowl are spatial metaphors, particularly architectural metaphors. I'll give you a, f a few. They had built her in with their purpose, speaking of, of, of Maggie, the central character, the young wife of the prince. They had built her in with their purpose, which was why above her a vault seemed more heavily to arch, so that she sat there in the solid chamber of her helplessness, as in a bath of benevolence, artfully, pre artfully prepared for her, over the brim of which she could just manage to see by stretching her neck. Baths of benevolence were very well, but at least unless one were a patient of some sort, a nervous eccentric or a lost child, one was usually not so immersed, save by one's request. It wasn't in the least what she had requested. She had flapped her little wings as a symbol of desired flight, not merely as a plea for, the, for a more gilded cage and an extra allowance of lumps of sugar. Another image. This, is, this is, refers to the prince. Light broke for him at last, indeed quite as a consequence of the fear of breathing a chill upon this luxuriance of her spiritual garden. As at a turn of his labyrinth, he saw his issue, which opened out so wide for the minute that he held his breath with wonder. He was afterwards to recall how, just then, the autumn night seemed to clear to a view in which the whole place everything around him, the wide terrace where he stood, the others with their steps below, the gardens, the park, the lake, the circling woods lay there as under some vast, excuse me, as under some strange midnight sun. It all met him during these instants as a vast expanse of discovery, a world that looked so lighted, extraordinarily new, and in which familiar objects had taken on a distinctness that as if it had been allowed a spoken pretension to beauty, interest, importance, he scarcely knew what gave them an inordinate quantity of character and verily an inordinate size. Just a few more of these, of these uh, metaphors. He had felt on his nearer approach the high temperature of the question. <laughs> Another one. What was between them had opened out further, had somehow through the sharp show of her feeling 
taken a positive stride, had entered, as it were, without mere words, the region of the understood, shutting the door after it and bringing them so still more nearly face to face. Fanny Assingham had at this moment the sense as of a large heaped dish presented to her intelligence and inviting it to a feast so thick with the notes of intention in this remarkable speech. Another one. One of her dissimulated arts for meeting their tension, meanwhile, was to interweave Mrs. Assingham as plausibly as possible with the undulations of their surface, to bring it about that she should join them of an afternoon when they drove together, or if they went to look at things, looking at things, here's that things again, looking at things being almost as much a feature of their life as if they were bizarre opening royalties. An image of the self as a form of staging. People stage their lives, they create effects. And one last one. Um, the crystal flask of her inmost attention really received it on the spot and she had even already the vision of how in the snug laboratory of her afterthought she should be able chemically to analyze it. <laughs> so uh, the point that uh, the, the aspect of, of James, we are like, like three blind people feeling, feeling up an elephant here. Uh, <laughs> funny part I, is I we're... I like that proposition. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the thing is that, oddly enough, we've, 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 we're groping uh, near the same spot, all three of us, without any previous consultation. And I think it has something to do with um, the continuing and inexhaustible uh, fascination of James to a certain kind of writer uh, of whom I think uh, Elizabeth and, and Bill and I all are, uh, that James, what is so fascinating in James, and this is not to in any way minimize or, or um, try to push to the side the enormous emotional impact of his work, uh, but I, what is so inexhaustibly fascinating is that he does offer uh, a theory of knowledge, an epistemology, and a poetics, more exactly, a dramaturgy of awareness. And out of this vocabulary, a vocabulary of such astonishing abstractness, he builds a web of incantatory inscriptions, be uh, descriptions, because I want to insist on the fact that this is incantatory prose. It has to be read with the inner ear. It is inner speech. You have to hear it. If you don't actually read it aloud, you have to give it the time to hear it in your head. And the tone is, I think, one of uh, incantation. There's no writer that James might be thought at first glance to be more unlike than Dickens. And yet there are many passages in James where I am uh, uh, reminded of the great incantatory set descriptive passes, passages in, in um, Dickens, for instance, the description of the fog uh, at the beginning of Bleak House, uh, because James, like uh, Dickens, is working with effects of alliter alliteration, uh, assonance, and repetition of words. 
for all the abstractness, which is much more extreme than, say, Proust. You know, of course, that James, particularly by the French, is often called the American Proust. Uh, for, for all the abstractness, uh, the effect is not uh, arid. Uh, it's, on the contrary, opulent, sumptuous. This abstract vocabulary is, in fact, a vocabulary of munificence, of plenitude, of desire, of jubilation, of ecstasy. In James's world, there, there is always more. There's more text, there's more consciousness, there's more space, there's more complexity in space, uh, there's more food for consciousness to gnaw on. He installs, if you will, a principle of desire in the novel, which seems to me new. Uh, it is often attributed to Proust, but I think it's, it's, uh, James has a much stronger version of it. It is epistemological desire, the desire to know, which is like carnal desire and often mimics or doubles carnal desire, physical desire. Uh, this is not, not to m minimize or denigrate Proust in any way, but it seems to me that, that, um, that Proust's phenomenology, his minute examination of behavior using certain uh, philosophical notions which do recur again and again as nouns in Proust's work, words like habit, sensation, idea, feelings, uh, is much simpler than James. And, uh, and, and Proust's philosophical or epistemological interests really clarify and develop at the, the very highest level uh, ideas which are quite traditional and common to all great novelists, uh, including Balzac. I think that James is far more uh, eccentric and original that there is a territory of consciousness which James has revealed that one could claim is new territory, as new as anything can be. Uh, new, let's say, in the way that the uh, geriatric monodramas, or microdramas, rather, of, of Beckett constitute uh, a new territory, even though there are uh, pr precursors, even for Beckett, in some of the uh, symbolist plays, for instance, the one-act plays of, of Maeterlinck. Uh, the, the late James, I think, and savage, cruel, wounding stories uh, that he tells in his great novels. Thank you. Now comes the second part. <laughs> As a point of information, I wonder if either of you know about translations of James, how, how much of him is translated into, say, French, Italian, German, and Russian. I don't know, because I was thinking when I was reading The Awkward Age of the immense difficulty of translating this very simple dialogue, but that so heavily weighted. Do you know uh, about translation? No, I, 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 I imagine I myself the, don't. I don't either. I, I imagine, imagine the, the Japanese is translated everything. 
Well, of course. No, I don't. I don't really. Well, know. I would think the turn of the screw and the portrait of a lady, but I'm really curious. I was thinking about that and today in reading the awkward age, how much of his work had been translated, and what they would make of it. Well, I think. I'm sure that James has been translated yeah. in all the major European languages, but yeah. I think it would be fair to say that he's not a writer who who figures very mm. seriously in the in in um, the Europeans' sense of our literature. Mm -hmm. There are these ritual um, acknowledgments of James, for instance, as the American Proust. But I, I know, I mean, since uh, French translations and Italian translations are the thing I know most about because I've lived in those two countries, I know a number of major novels of James have only been translated into French in the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. And when I read about American literature in, in French and Italian, he's not a writer who is um, often mentioned. The, 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 our great writers, the ones that matter, to foreigners and constitute their sense of our literature. Again, I'm talking about Western Europeans, uh, uh, leaving out a great deal of the world. Uh, Melville, of course, is terribly important. Poe is terribly important. Um, well, and obviously Fitzgerald and Faulkner and Hemingway. Uh, Whitman, another writer, tremendously important. I would say that of, of our greatest writers, James is probably the one that has mattered least mm. to foreigners. It, yeah. Emerson, of course, is very important. I mean, for the for the happy few, Nietzsche loved Emerson, for instance, and that's that's worth a million readers. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't think they. I think they don't get it. I think, mm. for one thing, he doesn't seem American enough, and foreigners love to patronize us, and they like us to be. Uh, uh, redskins rather than, than than mandarins. I think he do, he doesn't he doesn't seem like a primitive. Um, he's 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 a professional foreigner, which doesn't fit in with their idea of how we ought to be. Uh, I, the Melville they get, you see, or they think they get Whitman, um, Emerson, and so on. But I think it would be harder for foreigners to get to. Uh, um, to, to get James, perhaps, for those obvious reasons. I mean, yeah. this is a man who lived abroad uh, most of his writing life, uh, and who wrote you know, out of the status of being a foreigner. That was a very important part of his identity as a writer, to be a foreigner. Yes, I, I wanted to comment on, on something you said about, uh, about James's uh, sense of the complications of existence. And I think that the so one other element there that I, I, I would like to, to add, and that is that not only did he feel, and I certainly agree with you entirely, that, that, the, that life is in immensely complicated, um, but that it was immensely complicated only for the right sort. That in <laughs> fact, it wasn't immensely complicated for so many other people. Uh, I think for, for instance, the kinds of people that he uh, uh, puts in his, his uh, weekends, he never saw those people really when he went to weekends. They're pretty shallow types on the whole. Um, uh, so what he is saying is, in a sense, if you people would look at your lives in the right way, you would see how complex and indeed horrible it all is. 
but of course, who wants to look at their lives in order to see how horrible it all is? Uh, and uh, one of the ways in which he does this is interestingly enough to say, you must at a certain point withdraw from the immediate um, impact of experience. If we take a, a comparison between a, a writer of enormous emotional power, and, uh, particularly in events and, uh, and so on like Faulkner, and we have, let's say, I can just imagine uh, these kinds of little Borghesian problems where you say to James, uh, deal with the seduction of the cow. Um, you know, how, how is this going? Well, James would immediately say, you see, that, that, that Faulkner's probably not got to the horror of it simply because he dealt with the horror of it. <laughs> um, what he should have done is back off from this and really find out what was awful about it, which had nothing basically to do with the action itself. Now, I think both Faulkner and James do this in many ways. I mean, when Temple Drake is raped with a corn cob, some people read the whole book and don't know that happened. <laughs> uh, but in a sense, what James does, I mean, uh, Faulkner circulate uh, around and, 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 um, and sort of darkens the issue for other reasons. Uh, James wants to know what this really means. And by the time he gets through knowing it, then the, the event itself as a crude event in the world is not terribly important. It's the meaning, the impact, and the fact that that will be lost on most people. Um, so what James wants to do, I think, is to really heighten the pain. Uh, we go through life not noticing things, not being people on whom, as he says in the great phrase, on whom nothing is lost. Everything is lost, <laughs> and just as well. I mean, that, that's, in a sense, you know, I think so. I, what I'd add to, to, to what your remark is, that James is, is aware that, in a way, people don't see that, that life is complicated. Um, and uh, in a sense, his generosity in showing us <laughs> that it is, is a real big pain. <laughs> but I think he does have uh, a, 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 a moralist's conception of what fiction does, that it is an education of the heart, uh, an education of the feeling, that, that for the reader to see things as more complicated is improving. I don't know whether I'm projecting my own sense of things on James, but I believe that that's what he's saying. Sure. Uh, <coughs> I mean, if you think of what the Golden Bowl is really about, whatever that means, uh, it's about a, a, a very innocent, credulous um, young woman who, who discovers uh, that her husband, her new husband, um, has a lover who's hanging around and who happens to be her best friend uh, and decides that perhaps the best way to deal with this problem is to get her widowed father to marry her husband's lover and ship them off to, back to America so that she can really... Um, uh, make the marriage work. I mean, it's a perfectly terrible story, and yet um, Maggie is not a monster. It's a, it's what is done and what happens is monstrous, but she's not a monster. There are no monsters in this story. It's a story. It's a it's a story that makes you weep, and told in this uh, 
extraordinary way that seems so evanescent, so that at any given moment, um, you cannot, you can't see what's happening. You can't see. There's no paragraph that you can look at in James and say, that's it, that's the killer, that's the part that well. just tears you to pieces. Um, you have to go through the whole experience, and it, it isn't in a given sentence, as it is, I think, in Dostoevsky or Flaubert or many other writers. I don't really think he meant that. I mean, I think you t speak of his you know, idea that of the immense complication of experience and so on. I do think he felt, as all complicated artists do in all the forms, that once he had put it down, it was all there and simple. I don't think he let these books go out, you know, with the idea that this is very difficult and complicated. I think he, you, you see what I mean? I mean, just as Cezanne, I'm sure, thought, now that's perfectly clear, isn't it? He did not, yeah, he did not wish, I don't think, to impose, you know, as an author of fictions, uh, to, he thought he had fully explained. And that's the, one of the real questions about the way his mind works, you know, when he puts these things together. But are you saying that he uh, would have been perplexed why people found his work difficult? I think so. I think, uh, it, no, he had wished to expose difficulty on the page. Yes, of course. And it's a, a little bit of a, it's a feeling of failure if yeah. you haven't fully done it, I suppose. Well, he also, he also really, I, I find a lot of authors have this attitude. Which yeah. I'm regularly amazed. I mean, they think, yes. this book, finally I'm going this to be popular. This is going to do this it. This will I mean, do it. And, and, and then, of course, they make a mistake. They write a good book. Yeah. It pays the attention. And, and uh, one of my favorite short stories of James is not because it's a good story. I don't think really it is. It's too laden with message. Uh, is called the next time, and uh, and it's yeah. a, about a writer who yeah. who decides to to you know he's writing these highly admired by a few masterpieces that nobody pays any attention and decides to sell out and write you know a popular book and can't and so then and and uh, and he writes this book and he's waiting it's sort of you know the the old story about uh, Faulkner deciding to write Sanctuary for money. Yes. I'm just going to write it. So, um, and, uh, and, and they say, well, gee, wonderful, brilliant, another you know, exquisite thing. Uh, and so that nothing happens. He says, the next time I'm going to do it, <laughs> the next time, and the next time. Finally, at the end, he says, all right, I'll just have to write masterpieces and give up. You know? <laughs> but I think that, that, that James, the whole theatrical adventure yeah, is an well, attempt of course. to... To reach a the public. heartbreaking uh, that he ever should have thought, ever should have imagined that he could. <laughs> no, it's one of the most heartbreaking experiences I think in literature of, of a purely literary experience. I'm not talking about. Well, he did get a, I think a, a rather large audience for, uh, um, oh, the, the book about the earlier one. I had it in my mind. To, to no. It'll come back to me. Uh, was very quite popular. Um, uh, 
Well, uh, James, of course, was a very famous writer. He was serialized in a very important yeah, magazine, yeah. monthly magazine, edited by his friend William Dean Howells. He was not an obscure writer. But many people reproached him for uh, a, a kind of indirection. And so for a long time, until really the James revival began uh, in the 1940s, uh, the lovers of James were very much on the defensive. They had to explain why he went on so much, why he didn't come to the point, why he didn't come, it didn't come to a focus in a certain way. And there were these fa famous, he was a great letter writer, correspondences with more straightforward uh, writers who were his contemporaries, uh, like Robert Louis Stevenson and H.G. And Wells, who treated him with enormous respect, I mean, and said, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, but don't you think perhaps it would be better to write in a somewhat more accessible or direct mm -hmm. uh, way? And James um, obstinately, because he couldn't write differently, because this was his voice, he couldn't write differently anymore than he could change the, uh, his fingerprints. Uh, he had to write this way. This was his voice. It was the way he talked. We have, we have um, uh, 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 witnesses who have written about James's private conversation, and he talked uh, in the later part of his life in the same prose, uh, <laughs> unlike, unlike the person in, in the Moliere play uh, um, who thinks, discovers that he's writing prose, he speaks prose, but of course he isn't. James really did speak prose. He, pr he did speak in this mincing uh, way, coming to the edge, going back, and going back to the edge again. Uh, but this, this was his voice. Uh, and I think it, what's important is that in the... Um, uh, the, the second period, if you will, of James's reputation, which is to say the last 40 years, there's the first 40 years and then there's the last 40 years, since the mid-40s, the beginning of the so-called James Revival, um, people were no longer on the defensive. They weren't trying to explain why he didn't come to the point qu more quickly. They realized that his purpose really was very different from any other writer. And uh, I, what I'd, I'd like to ask the two of you if you if you share my view that James really is as as unique in literature or in American letters in particular as he seems to me. Uh, well, I don't think any any novelist that I've read from any language writes in, at all in this way. I don't really know where it comes. There's always a part of it, it's so different, and particularly the nuance, the infinite nuance. I mean, and the, and the dialogue, which is the thing, I think, among also, it's more his, I mean, it's more unlike writers than even his exposition. I can't think of, I can't imagine another writer writing that kind of dialogue, perhaps Virginia Woolf, I don't know, uh, hovering, you know, on the brink. Uh, I don't think he is like other writers. Do you, uh, Bill, see much? Ah, he put out, <laughs> you know, no. I mean, that's what, you know, the, uh, I think he has a tradition, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so that one could place him in a certain tradition and, and, and in American letters, so the Faulkner, wild people uh, are one tradition and then there's the Mannerist group and so forth. And, and it's clear that, that, uh, that James is in that sense. You go from Hawthorne and up yeah. and uh, trace it back through, through Austin and so forth, that, that kind of tradition in a certain sense. But what's misleading about that kind of derivation, which is a very popular one, is that it concentrates on subject matter. 
uh, that is, these people become novelists of manners uh, and uh, so on. Whereas most of them uh, don't have, as we've been talking about here, uh, this, uh, this epistemological passion. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, he is just, uh, it is carnal epistemology. And, and he is, is uh, absolutely uh, uh, consumed with it. Um, over and over again, of course, it's a standard old tradition, the, the corruption of the youth and the education of the, on that, that tradition goes back to the heart of the novel, of course. The early epistolary novels were all like that, too. Uh, but there's another type on which uh, James places, and that is another aspect of the epistemological problem. And you get this in a novel like Sacred Fount, which is really about theory construction. Everybody is trying to figure out how you come to know that a certain thing happens, mm -hmm. and you construct the theories. And then the question is, at a certain time, you know, you build all these elaborate theories to account for these relationships of this data that you observe, and uh, then the danger is you act on it. Uh, and, and, and so what you have in James is not simply uh, James wanting to know, but the whole process of how you come to know, how in the social situation in particular, it passes through this hand and that hand, so-and-so said, so-and-so said, that, and then it's handed on, and each thing is, is twisted and maneuvered, and so on. So you have all that kind of, of, uh, of, of problem, and I don't think anyone else is as interested in that as, as, uh, as James. Hawthorne has a different kind of, of determinacy because he has a, a different theology. Mm -hmm. He's much more sure of the world and, mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and the evil in it than, than, than James. Now, I think that James really wrote about something that nobody wrote about, and, and that is, that's rare. When I, when I read The Golden Bowl, each time I read it, I'm deeply shocked. I can't believe anybody wrote this, and, mm -hmm. I, and, I, and, and I feel that Comparing it to other novels of James as well, not just to other novels, it seems to me to touch a level of profundity in the in in, in the the um, representation of feeling, of awareness, of what human relationships are about, that I don't find anywhere else. I mean, to me, it really is uh, an education. I feel that it's a book that's uh, that's changed me. That I would not, I'm not the same person that I would be if I hadn't read this book, and there are very few books uh, that, I would, that I would say that of. Um, the, th again, the, the story, is, it's not the story, it is in the telling. It is, it is what he actually pulls out of this situation, this, this ghastly, and if you will, even melodramatic situation that could be represented in, um, in such a summary way. And I think that, that this is why James does continue and will continue uh, to fascinate writers and um, and devoted readers, because uh, there is actually something you learn as opposed to the enjoyment or the entertainment uh, that you can find in in uh, in many great writers. There, there is something. There is a teaching. There is a wisdom uh, in in his books about consciousness, about feeling, which completely overrides other questions which can be disturbing, such as his snobbery uh, and, and uh, limitations of subject matter and prejudice, and so, which obviously one, one is aware of as, as one reads. I think uh, 
for the few minutes that we have remaining that, that w without staying here too long, it's not too comfortable for many of you, and I, again, am really sorry that so many of you are in the back or standing, that we will uh, open it to some questions. If you keep the questions to Henry James, uh, the three people sitting in front of you are interested in a lot of other things, as you know, <laughs> and we've committed ourselves to all kinds of follies and, and strong opinions uh, on in print as well as producing our 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 own uh, neo-Jamesian works, but uh, we just want to talk about James tonight, so if somebody wants to um, ask a question, I'll direct it to somebody in particular. Yeah. No, I really would like a question rather than a statement. Uh, Yeah. Uh, what's the question? Have we, oh, the question is: Have we seen have we seen the films or television adaptation? Yeah. Okay. The question the question is: What what do we think of the uh, have we seen and what do we think of the um, films or television adaptations? Well, I'll go first. It's easy. I think they have virtually no relation to Henry James. <laughs> I saw one, and that, that'll be the end of that. Yeah. Well, we've seen things, but obviously this is not what we're, we're not interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, I know. Uh -huh. There have been many. Right. Let me repeat the question because we are taping this, the, 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 which is an important and interesting question. Uh, it's, the question, is, if I can summarize, is, is, is it not true that there is a kind of revulsion against the labor of consciousness in the late fiction uh, and, by extension, uh, a, a negative view of sexual consummation? Well, I, I agree. I don't think there's a con conflict. Um, I think that uh, uh, James's desire to know, uh, as he increasingly knows, um, uh, what you know is more and more repulsive. That's certainly true. I think all the way through James's career, um, James, unlike his brother, uh, was concerned with the horror of using people as means. And um, uh, I think that in a way, though he would certainly not accept this because I don't think he ever read Immanuel Kant, I think he is a Kantian. Um, and I think he has a horror of people being merely used and over and over again it's, it's women um, that he sees in this respect. 
It must continually be done. One must still explore the situation. Um, the, almost with a kind of Freudian perception of, of what lies beneath, because Maggie, for instance, is going to leave her father and get married, and so she decides to furnish her father with a substitute, a wife. Well, the whole notion of what's going on there, you know, if you put the Freudian thing to it, um, it, it, it we would immediately move to. Uh, in a sense, what James is constantly aware of is that even the most, well, as he speaks in a famous phrase that I love, the high brutality of good intentions. Um, <laughs> this, everything that even looks good, you know, then you look pressure and it, and it looks worse. And then you look further, it's even worse than that. And I think that, that uh, it, there's this pressure nevertheless to pursue. It may have been and the cartoon, you know, that was drawn about James and looking through the keyhole, <laughs> it may have been that early on James's uh, uh, epistemological, carnal epistemology was simply more at the level of the curious uh, peeker at things. But it's an immense, it's, an, it's amazing how much this bachelor knew about sexuality who probably had practiced in that sense, at any rate, very little of it, um, because he spent his time knowing it <laughs> rather than simply doing it. Well, you know? well, I think he lived in London in a sort of campy world, very much so with Howard Sturgis and all those people. And I think they talked and chattered all the time. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yes. Oh, 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 you know, yeah. and uh, some of <laughs> yeah. his dialogue is, has that sort of camp accent, like, get her. <laughs> uh, he said, I don't think you should leave that out. I think he cared terribly about, you know, all this sort of gossip and so forth. Oh, yes, but what and was there, gossip? And it was, what, there what was a lot of it, too. Yes. The question is of, about his theory of knowledge. Was he really very influenced by his brother, uh, William James, or was it different? Or? Well, my, my impression is that, that uh, if we compare, let's say, the styles of William James, who was also a beautiful writer, um, with Henry, oh, we see the difference in their moral points of view as well. Um, I think that uh, they, they are Shem uh, and Sean. I think that he, that William James didn't have Henry James' uh, stamina, a, a, a willingness to accept the tragic. William James was always cutting it off. I mean, he saw how horrible it was, and he said, "Let's not deal with it. It's too it's too awful to be born." And and uh, there's a there's a kind of snipping off of the of the the, uh, the hard part in William James. Uh, yes, I th I think James is uh, Henry James is the profounder philosopher. Mm -hmm. Of not only profounder, I think he has a better 
The question is, uh, we've talked, although I don't think we've said very much about James as a uh, in terms of a tradition. I think mostly we've said that they're uh, how, uh, commented on how extraordinarily original he is, how 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 little speaking of his precursors will take you, in fact, in describing him. But anyway, uh, the question is. Uh, what about James as a modern writer? I mean, can he be considered a modern writer? I mean, he obviously is a writer who, who matters enormously, has mattered enormously to, to um, a certain, um, I, I would say, modernist, if uh, the word has to be used in quotation mark, American writer for several generations now. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, I think the very oddity of his work <laughs> makes him a modern writer. But of course, there are lots of old writers <laughs> going back to ancient times who are odd. I don't know. <laughs> and not like other people. The, I, I really don't know. Uh, I don't know what tradition you're talking about, if you're talking about who. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's as modern as Faulkner. Faulkner is a sort of Elizabethan writer, although uh, I mean that is that those cadences of his are very biblical. I, I don't really know. I think in the way James sets up his themes, he's very much a modern writer. I don't know that the actual construction of the paragraphs, you could quite say that. There's a bit of Pinter in him, <laughs> as I have. Maybe I'm so con conscious of a lot of things when, when I, you've just read the awkward age, of the um, sort of reduced question and answer method. I think that it's not uh, it's it's not just a, a, a semi-serious observation to say that what's modern about him is is the the, the oddity because. Uh, if part of the the modernist literary tradition is a, a, a cultivation of a certain kind of, of 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 eccentricity, I mean, going back to the, the the notion that what literature does, let's say, the modernist definition of literature would be literature increases uh, or modifies capacities for perception, changes your way of perceiving the world, which I think is uh, and your and your relationship to language. Then James would certainly be, along with Flaubert, uh, uh, perhaps the main precursor for the courage to be uh, relentless, to be uh, eccentric, to concentrate on consciousness, to feature um, the uh, understanding of narration of how a story is uh, unfolding as itself part a part of the story. But of course, he's much richer than that. I mean, I think w uh, what really makes him a great writer is that you can have many Henry James, and that even in a, in a, in a um, era now in which there is uh, um, a repudiation of a lot of the ideas of literary modernism, James holds up very well. I mean, you just 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 turn the prism a little bit, and he. Um, can be can be looked at in, in, in a way that's also satisfying uh, in this current period of uh, anti-modernist sentiment. Well, just one further observation. It, it depends, on, of course, what you mean by modern. But 
let me just quickly substitute a few things. First of all, destruction of the narrative flow, the dominance of narrative, uh, compared, say, to the 19th century novel. It's not a, a, a novel of movement, um, ideally, let's say, uh, like Fielding, where you're not only the characters, but the, the book is, is traveling down the road. Um, <laughs> s uh, second, secondly, he moves even through character. I mean, we've seen this, of course, from action. You move to character and so on. But James moves into the consciousness. It's a stress on the importance of the quality of consciousness, not on action, not on, on, on people as seen uh, uh, as characters in the ordinary sense. Uh, so uh, it becomes a exfoliation, um, exposition of meaning rather than descriptions of events. Um, another thing is the dominance of, um, of, uh, of language. Um, it is, uh, for me, the, the uh, supreme achievement of James is that every sentence of his is a length of consciousness, and it's a length of verbal consciousness. And it's a length of verbal consciousness in which the language attempts to achieve all the elements of consciousness itself, desire, perception, uh, all, everything. And so the language has to be really, in that sense, thickened uh, that, I think that's a, a, a very definite uh, modernist tendency. Mm -hmm. um, he is a, a, a writer like many modernists from Flaubert on, um, uh, uh, despite the fact that his theory, now his theory is different, it's not modernist, his own theory, but his practice, I think, diverges in certain fundamental ways. He is a thing producer. He thinks of a book ultimately as an object. Um, and this is itself um, uh, a, um, I think, um, modernist tendency. Uh, in, in certain ways, even if you take Joyce and Joyce's own moves in this direction, um, Joyce is much more explicit about that. Uh, for instance, Finnegan's Wake simply doesn't end. It's a uh, self-contained thing. But uh, if you look at the, the awkward age itself, it's a, one of the things that's extraordinary about it is that it is a play. I mean, he has, you know, come from the theater and it's been ruinous. Why has it been ruinous? Well, the actors are terrible, the directors are awful, the audiences can't understand anything, and so on. So he creates the play in the book and seals it off. It's, it's a very suffocating book in that sense uh, because the audience is composed of about 250 Henry Jameses. <laughs> uh, despite all of that, you know, despite this sealing off, which is again a t typical um, modernist move, um, the, the world is there and it's an extraordinarily powerful and moving work. Yeah. Uh, but you do feel, you know, caught. Uh, there is a clear line drawn around the book. Um, uh, he's created, sure, there's relationships to the world, he's concerned with them, but there's a clear line around that, that book. You enter the, that, the book. Joyce is going to say the same things. Proust says the same thing. Um, but I, I think that they, that they, they don't achieve it any more than, than James does. Mm. 
you, you descend into uh, those, those, those words uh, and that language. And like Joyce and, uh, and, and others too, James is a very poor, this I think is, is one of the things about modernism too, a poor model to follow. <laughs> he will swallow you up. He will destroy anybody you know, who tries. It's, yeah. it's like uh, coming after Milton. Just <laughs> run as fast as ever as can. Uh, he's just, he's going to, Joyce is the same way. There here are people of tremendous, uh, overwhelming um, uh, uh, encompassing uh, everything. And so once you get in there, and, and you know, you come out, there are glorious moments, I think, when for about five minutes after you've left a book, you think like it. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're suddenly yes. there, and you, five minutes of glory. <laughs> true, that's yeah. true. Yes, yes, you. Oh, the question is uh, uh, to, to start with the, the, the end, with the end at the beginning. Uh, are the English justified in claiming Henry James as 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 a as a as a British writer? Uh, well, do give, they? And I'm not aware that they do. But I mean, it is true, of course. He did live most of his adult life in in uh, in London, and then he took he bought a country house, uh, uh, and he became a a, a British subject. Uh, a year before he died in, in 1915 as a gesture of solidarity with England because England was already in the war, um, in the First World War, and America had not yet entered. Uh, but uh, the question of whether he... I, I don't believe that I'm he is considered that. that. I mean, yeah. I think there's an argument, there's a very good argument for saying that T.S. Eliot is an English poet. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have to admit that in my own... Uh, library. Uh, uh, I, he's he's in Brit lit and not in American lit. Uh, yeah, speaking of Elliot, but I I don't feel subject. that um, uh, James um, could ever be counted as anything but an. Amer he seems to be quintessentially American in precisely the way that Americans make excellent foreigners. Yeah. Well, actually, I think if you look back at the novels, they're not even international novels, really. When you look at the Golden Bowl, the people who are the motors of the action are Americans, including Charlotte Stamp. And all of the important people in the portrait of a lady are Americans. And this is uh, sort of with James, it's flee her as you will, America pursues you still. And he, um, he cannot, Really, there are very, very few plots and few, very few books that do not have a, the, a per, an American controlling the action. And even though these people have been living abroad and are wandering around Italy and so forth, they're still Americans. I think he's as American as Gertrude Stein. <laughs> well, gee, I was about to say that Gertrude Stein regarded Henry James as the greatest um, American writer. <laughs> and I wouldn't disagree with Gertrude for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. I'm 
Yeah, the question, I have to repeat it for, for, for our taping. Uh, the, uh, the questioner, uh, it's a welcome question, uh, wants to take us back to some earlier James and particularly the turn of the, the novella, The Turn of the Screw, which was the subject of one of Edmund Wilson's most famous essays uh, about 40 years ago, which uh, described the, uh, the ghost story, which accounted for the ghost story uh, as a projection of the governess's sexual repressions and not as, as real ghosts that the, that the children see. The question is, uh, what's the status of, well, of this novella now, which is one of James's most famous uh, works, and uh, I guess in particular the Edmund Wilson thesis, which is, I guess, the most influential essay written about that book and one of the most influential essays ever written about any book of James. Well, I, I just would raise the question about, you know, how odd it is to say, well, is it a real ghost or a what ghost? I mean, uh, no, but definition, ghosts aren't real. But now, the, the question is, is seems to me uh, 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 odd. Way. It, it comes up in treatments of, of staging Hamlet, too. You know, shall you have the ghost clank about on the stage uh, or not? That is, are ghosts real? Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and I think that, uh, that, that uh, what you have to do is just look at the text and see whether James is going to make the ghost a kind of perceptual apparition. It doesn't matter uh, whether or not it's projected. Um, you know, if, I, if I'm ha having DTs, say, I, uh, the things that I see, I see. Uh, now, we might so, uh, say, well, only you see it indeed. But what's, if I were looking out and saying, gee, look at those simulated projected snakes of mine. <laughs> they're, they're the real thing. Uh, so I don't think I don't think that, that Wilson solves the problem that in a sense he's raising by saying, oh, they're just projections of, of the. Uh, they're still very much there in that ghostly way. <laughs> we just have, can I get a couple more questions? Yes. <laughs> we're in it. We're 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 uh, we're a little bit feeling a little silly this evening. Uh, as uh, it's been read as uh, showing some hostility or negative feelings about James, all, all our jokes and so on. So the question is, could we talk about what we don't like about James and how that relates to what we say we do like about him? Over to you, Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> We don't. We don't I have really, to answer. We don't have to answer. I really don't like the question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really. It's it's too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, it's not really to the point when you have a very great writer of what don't you like about Shakespeare, you know something like that. I don't 
really quite feel that that's not the best uh, similarity there. It's really not to the point. Uh, each book is different. There are some things that, don't you think, that one might feel, some that are, you feel more strongly about than others. But he, you know, to a certain sense, James has all faults and no faults. So it's very difficult to, uh, as Gertrude Stein said about him, I think a very profound thing, James had no failure and no success. And much, I don't mean, and she didn't mean with the public in what he was writing. It's really something to think about. It's a profound remark about his art. That sounds like a good answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the uh, uh, citing Bill Gass's citation of James, the high brutality of good intentions. The question is, what about the uh, revisions for the New York edition? I, I would just like to say w one thing, which is not to your question, but it's always fascinated me, that there was one novel of James that he suppressed for the New York edition, which, as you know, it was offered the opportunity to bring out all of his work in a uniform edition with beautiful photographs by uh, Coburn. Uh, and he left one novel out, and uh, rather surprisingly, um, and that's The Bostonians. Yeah. Mm. And that certainly isn't because it was hard. Bostonians is one of the most uh, accessible, um, in, in a certain sense, conventional of James's novels. It's a, it's a, you could almost speed read it. Uh, um, but he left it out, and I th I think the reason he left it out is is because it's really the 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 uh, consciousness of the author, namely James, in that book, and I think only in that book is really nasty. That James, uh, uh, there's a surplus of malice in the book toward a number of characters, in particular the women, Mrs. Peabody and uh, Olive Chancellor. That is kind of out of control. There's a real, there's a real nastiness in the book, and I think that James saw that. He's, um, it's a wonderful book, and a book one one reads wincingly with a great deal of admiration. Um, but I think it's fascinating that he would leave out so large a book uh, out of his collected edition, and I think it's not just because it had been scandalous, obviously, because there were some real life models for these uh, uh, Boston people, uh, and, and he was criticized for his portrait of them, but I think he, he himself must have had um, some recoil from something that got out of control in, in his relationship to these characters, because he uh, very often, almost characteristically, depicts people who are cruel, but he is not characteristically cruel to his characters, and he really is cruel to these women. Uh, and and uh, it's, I think it's interesting that he did leave it out. But anyway, that's not. I just want to throw that in. What about the the changes, the fact, the, the rewriting, and the changes uh, in the New York? Well, edition? I think first of all, in order to give an answer to that in terms of whether you like the changes as such, you would have to go over each yeah. one. I think sometimes he he hurts the text. Sometimes he improves it in a certain sense. But I think the more interesting question is, what about the whole idea of the, doing that. Uh, I think that uh, in return to, uh, I didn't answer this question, which I thought was a very good question. Uh, <laughs> but 
But uh, one of the things I think that I find, I find objectionable in James uh, is that he is a, a person who covers his tracks. And I think in, in a case like this, what he's trying to do is change the path. And I, I think it's a, a, a wrong thing to do. Um, what, do you, uh, what do you mean by covers his tracks? Well, I think he is trying, he's trying to, to uh, make all of his books as if they had been written at the same age. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, sort of like neatness. You know, I mean, a, a person who's neat goes about erasing history. Uh, you pick up after. You mean the like party. like Stalin? There wasn't any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Stalin is very neat. Uh, um, and and I think James is is, is you know uh, this is a sort of thing that comes over writers um, uh, often where they think oh that was a juvenile book I can't stand to look at it etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but very few people say all right I'll rewrite it so it's. 62 or whatever age, you know. That seems a very strange thing. Um, and uh, so I'm, this is one of the things I don't like about it. Um, I think James is not only seeking to penetrate and find, he's also, as many readers feel, doing nothing else, hiding. And, uh, and I think he's hiding some of the time. I think the, uh, the, impulse to rewrite is certainly very strong. I'm sure you feel oh, that. Oh, yeah, rewriting, and, uh, that's not and, Or to suppress, even. The um, poetry, uh, poets are always rewriting, and usually I don't think that uh, the opinion finally is, is that the revisions late don't work. For instance, John Crow Ransom, who had a small but perfect production uh, tried to rewrite or did rewrite his greatest poems and nobody was very happy about it. But I don't think James's revisions were very great. Is, isn't it your understanding? No, Yates is a yeah. good example because yeah. there's a case where I think the, the, the revisions are really powerfully yes. improving. Yeah. yeah. But that's rare. I think generally the, the famous examples like Wordsworth rewriting the prelude 40, 45 years later yes. actually, 1805 and 1850, or uh, Auden suppressing uh, so much of his early work. I yeah. think that generally speaking the, 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 the prejudice that we all have is that they're going to muck it up, that the, le that the, the older writer should not touch mm -hmm. the earlier work, that they're bound to misunderstand it. There's no reason why writers understand their work better than other people and no reason why the, an older writer understands the, what he or she was doing as a younger writer. So it, although there m might have been some improvements, I think most people feel, on, for good reason, that um, it's not, I would argue with you, for, the, for a moral reason that one shouldn't try to cover your tracks, but in fact that what they generally do is mess it up. They don't understand. They don't understand what 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 they did and what was good about what they did. Okay, we'll have uh, just just one more question. Yeah. Yes.
How about Browning's influence? Well, it seems to be disturbing uh, to this person that James is so original. Well, of course, nobody's completely original, but some people are more original than others. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, what about Browning? What about the Browning monologue? I think I think the problem would be that, of course, one could find lots of precedents for James's subject matter. There's no doubt about it. But James's method, and James's method, is finally his subject matter. Mm. I mean, it's his own. It's 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 it it takes precedent over subject matter in the more literal sense. Um, there doesn't really seem to be a precedent for for the method, uh, for the way he describes what people do, how they relate to each other, what a relationship is. I mean, just uh, two people know each other. What does it mean to, that, that these two people know each other? Um, and the way he would describe that, it seems to me, has no precedent. The kinds of relationships he describes, the, the, the social bias uh, that he may bring to certain aspects of the world that he describes, um, some of the melodramas and so on surely have have lots of precedents and if you look all to, to really early James like Roderick Hudson and so on of course you, you, you can see him emerging out of out of a world of fiction uh, you know of the Atlantic Monthly as edited by William Dean Howells and so on that, that, that clearly he didn't come out of nowhere but where he took it seems to me I think some something else and it really is the method rather than uh, than just the subject, but I think that Brown, Browning, of course, is very is 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 an important writer, a lot more important than most people think. Obviously, had tremendous influence on T. S. Eliot, and and he's he's uh, somebody who's as a precursor of modernism has surely been underestimated. I think that's certainly to be said about Browning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Those of you who wish to stay will be having a reception at the back. <laughs> an old-fashioned literary. Evening. I hope it was all right. <laughs> yeah.